Welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast, where powerful women are interviewed every week to share real inspiring stories and incredible insight to help women or anyone break the barriers, be a part of innovation, shatter the glass ceiling, and dominate to the top of their sport, industry, or life's mission. Join us as we celebrate exceptional women and step into our power. And now, here's your host, Angela Gennari. Thank you so much for joining me for the Pretty Powerful Podcast. This is Angela Gennari, and I am sitting here with Debbie Gardner. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you're recommended to me by a mutual friend of ours from the Department of Homeland Security. I love that we have these kind of friends. This yes. is a nice, it's a nice circle to be in. Absolutely. And I'm very appreciative to him. And I will tell you that one of the most um, impressive things after I've started this podcast is how many men have reached out to me to recommend, you know, exceptional women. And I get more recommendations from men than I do from women. That's so very interesting. I find that to be fascinating. So I want to introduce Debbie because she's super impressive and I'm very, very grateful to be sitting here with her today. Debbie Gardner is the solutions evangelist for GrayShift, where she assists and educates law enforcement with issues surrounding the lawful access to digital evidence. Prior to joining GrayShift, she served 30 years with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, where she had assignments in specialty areas covering undercover narcotics, healthcare fraud, terrorism intelligence, fusion center management, officer-involved shootings, and online child sexual exploitation. In her last position of eight years, she served as a special agent in charge of GBI's Child Exploitation and Computer Crimes Unit. Agent Gardner was also the commander of the Georgia Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force and had the responsibility of managing and coordinating that task force, which consisted of over 260 law enforcement agencies in Georgia. She attended the 267th session of the FBI National Academy and is a graduate of the Command College at Columbus State University, where she earned her Master of Public Administration degree, as well as University of Georgia. Go dogs. Absolutely. Go dogs. <laughs> That's where I went to undergrad. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today. I am so impressed. So 30 years of law enforcement with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Super, super impressive. And congratulations on your retirement. Thank you very much. <laughs> 30 years now that I'm sitting here went yes. by in a blink. Really? Absolutely. Wow. Now, when I was in the midst, yeah. not so much. Right, right, right. But now <laughs> that I'm sitting here 30 years later, um, I, there, I honestly only had a few bad days. Yeah. And even when I retired, I still enjoyed walking into the building every day. Uh, I still enjoyed my job. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I give you a lot of credit for that because it's not an easy job, especially some of the assignments that you've had. I know right. it had to weigh on you mentally. Absolutely. Um, you know, my I, I actually did my internship. I was a pre-law uh criminal psychology major in college. So I have my bachelor's in criminal psychology. Okay. And so I kind of understand a little bit about, you know, some of the, the things that you dealt with, but not even close to the extent, obviously. Right. But um, I studied child psychology and child criminal psychology. So that was really my I would imagine we could have some very interesting conversations. <laughs> I did my internship with the Department of Juvenile Justice, and um, it was very... Um, challenging for me um you know being i was 20 21 years old and you know i was on 24-hour suicide watch with three or four different children at the time um and of course there were suicide attempts so three o'clock in the morning you get the call you go out you talk to you know right to the, to the child and 
it, uh, we had a lot of gang members. Um, we had a nine-year-old girl who purposely got herself arrested because her brother had been arrested for gang activity. He was 13, and she didn't want to be in the house alone and uh, because of the abuse happening it, at the house. It's uh, heartbreaking, some of the things that the, yes. the, the children in... Um, in society go through. Uh, it's, um, and it's very rewarding working for um, uh, agencies like DJJ yes. um, and, and anyone in law enforcement or child services, family services, very rewarding, but also incredibly heartbreaking and, and stressful because you, it's hard to solve all those problems. It's hard to solve the problems. It's hard to connect with the kids who have built up these walls. And it's especially hard to not go across the table to the parents yeah. when you know that they're abusing the kids and you have to do a psychosocial assessment or you have to interview them. You have and, to go through the process and, all and obey the law. And yeah. arrest them. Yep. You know, and, and it's so incredibly challenging. And it I is. actually diverted at that time because I thought to myself, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this and have a normal life because I was so engaged in that one summer that I did my internship that I just thought to myself, I'm going to lose myself in this, you know, that and, does happen. Yes. Um, and, um, good that you noticed that for yeah. your own, for your own wellness. Um, there are, there are many people who love that aspect of and, and relish in the satisfaction. Yeah. But it is very mentally tough. Absolutely. Well, I give you so much credit because, um, I can tell you, I didn't have what it took to do it and the fact that you did it for 30 years says a lot so thank you for being on that side of it and working to help these kids um so i wanted to start by asking what led you into law enforcement it's it's uh i mean obviously it's not something all little girls are sitting there dreaming of but i think it's something they definitely should so where where was your motivation so i did not want a normal job okay that that's probably the best way that i can describe that when I entered college at the University of Georgia, I actually also um, entered Air Force ROTC at the okay, time. Yeah. And I did two years. I actually wanted to be a pilot. Okay. Uh, I am too short. So, you know, after doing that for two years and absolutely loving it, I just decided that that was not the path for me if I wasn't able to be a pilot. So I talked with the cadre at the you know, ROTC offices, and they sort of helped me choose a different path. And what we came up with was criminal justice. Wow. And I loved solving puzzles and putting putting pieces, uh, you know, independent pieces of information together to tell a story or to find truth. And um, that's sort of what led me to criminal justice. Uh, and then to investigations. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I think that um, you know having that innate skill set obviously made you really good at your job. So you're able to transition all of those skills that you already had into something. So we like, all have our strengths and weaknesses. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I'm a very logical, methodical uh, person, yes. and so you know putting pieces together to to tell the truth um, appealed to me. That's amazing. I love it. So. Then you get into law enforcement, and your first assignment was uh, undercover narcotics. It was. <laughs> so the GBI, at the time, it was an entry-level position with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And I did an internship with the GBI as a college student and okay. then was hired about six months later okay. as an undercover narcotics agent. And at that time, um, they were hiring, you know, they were hiring former law enforcement. They were also hiring kids out of college. They hired me at 22 years old to drive all over the state of Georgia and buy, at the time it was crack, yeah. undercover, 
in small towns in Georgia. It was street level narcotics. Yeah. Um, for seventeen thousand dollars a year. Wow. And yeah. I was using my own vehicle. Um, wow. It was really not a very good deal. Right. But um, it, you know, it was my entry into the GBI. I did that for about four and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it gave you a lot of good sense of it how things work on the street. It it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was you know. Um, I worked with a lot of law enforcement throughout the state, a lot of other GBI agents throughout the state, a lot of local law enforcement agencies throughout the state. Um, and it was it, like it was it was basically working in neighborhoods that legitimately had problems yeah. with, you know, um, selling drugs in their neighborhood and they needed help. Yeah. And so we would go in and buy, you know, um, like I said, at the time it was crack from street level drug dealers and do that for maybe six months and then um, arrest them all at the same time. Wow. And was that, uh, that was successful, I imagine. It was very successful. Good. Um, it was a very successful program. And it was, a, at the time, it was a grant-funded program. The GBI does not have that program anymore. Okay. Um, but, yeah, that's what I did for, that was my entry into law enforcement. Right. Okay. Awesome. You talked about the last eight years of your career being the most impactful. It was. The best eight years of your life. It Tell absolutely me why. was. Um, so the last eight years of my time with the GBI was, um, in the child exploitation and computer crimes unit. And it was impactful to me for a variety of reasons. Um, it was very rewarding work. So the mission of that office was to detect, investigate, and assist with the prosecution of, uh, online child sexual exploitation, uh, child sexual abuse material commonly referred to as child pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also worked the online enticement of children wow. by adults and child sex trafficking. So um, it was incredibly rewarding and it was really um, a national effort. So the task force in Georgia is one of 61 ICAC task forces across the country wow. who all work together to combat this uh, child pornography, child sexual abuse material issue that is basically overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other reason it was very impactful is um, I loved everyone that I always worked with. Well, maybe not everyone, but almost <laughs> everyone that I always worked with. But in my in the office that I supervised, the the agents, the digital forensic investigators that were there, the administrative staff that we had were, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but they were absolutely my favorites. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they were some of the most knowledgeable, um, passionate, mm-hmm. dedicated people to helping children. And that is like their impact on me that made a huge difference as well. Wow. I know that um, when you are talking about um, these criminal um enterprises that are going after children do you find that most of them are trying to meet the children in person or are they just trying to get photos and exploit them online for others both so a lot of the cases that we worked and both of those things happen regularly okay if i if i had i don't know that i could put a number on it necessarily it's probably different everywhere but um, I would say that more people are trying to exploit children to send them photographs, nude um, photographs, exploitive photographs, um, to, so that they can either use those for their own sexual gratification, trade those with other people that are like-minded, or to uh, extort the child for either additional photos or to meet them for sex or a lot of times for money. So that happens wow. a lot, and it's 
the reason it maybe happens more is because they can do that from anywhere in the world, you know, and they, wow. they, they can do it from sitting at their, at their computer. They can, they can do it with their mobile phone. Wow. So yeah. but there is a very large number, uh, a very large component of people that are trying to meet children for sex. We used to do a lot of proactive operations mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we were uh, very well trained and there's actually a lot of legal guidelines we had to follow, but we would go online and, um, you know, pretend to be a child and ha- people would show up regularly wow, to have so sex scary. with the child. Wow. Yeah. So, and we actually knew that they, we were getting the correct people because many times afterwards they would also say that they have had prior sexual contact with children. So that's so sad. I mean, as a mom, you and I are both mothers. Absolutely. Um, how this must make you absolutely crazy. It is. And interestingly enough, the work unit that I supervised was mainly female. Wow. And um, it was, it and still is a work unit of mama bears. I was about to say, mama bears do not mess with the mama bear. No, will do not. eat you for lunch. <laughs> um, and it is probably the hardest working yes. work unit. Absolutely. So. And they're passionate and they're driven. Uh, yeah. And they, they truly are, I mean, they wake up with a purpose every single day, I imagine. There are a lot of great males on the team as well. Sure. But a lot of time, yeah, that office has for a very long time been predominantly female. Wow. That's great. I mean, I'm great that it's mm-hmm. female and mm-hmm. that um, we're looking out for our children because I think that that's one thing that we do really, really, really well. Yes. Than anyone. So um, that's that's great. So, um, you know, kind of leading into that question. So uh, woman to woman, mom to mom, protection professional to protection professional. Right. I own a security company. How the hell do we protect our kids from these crazy people who are out there shooting up schools and doing these things to our children? How do we protect our children? So those are sort of two different questions. So like online, educate them, make them aware. And I guess that, 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 that's in school as well but you know there are certain rules they have to follow when you know if there's an active shooter situation i mean they can be as aware as they want but um online being aware educating them talking with them you know having a conversation about say about online safety we teach them to cross the street yes you know we have to teach them how to be safe online um, so that's the brief answer for that. As far as, um, you know, school shootings, um, I will readily say, um, that I, uh, that there are professionals that are much more uh, educated about that than I am. However, I will say that every law enforcement officer in the United States is basically trained very similarly to mm-hmm. handle active shooter, right. um, active shooter, um, scenarios. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, right after, um, Columbine and Sandy Hook, um, you know, it was renewed training. Um, but most law enforcement officers are trained exactly the same as far as preventing it from happening. I do believe, you know, just personally, personal yeah. opinion, um, uh, you know, mental health, um, mental health is is a, a huge factor in um, criminal activity in general, right. um, and um, as well as um, you know, um, I am a, I. If we're going to get into politics, sure, you know, yeah. um, you know, I am a, a Second Amendment supporter. However, I do believe that there are some things that we could do to make society safer mm-hmm. with regard to gun laws. 
I agree. And and I'm on I'm on the same page as you. I mean, I I qualify every year with my gun, my handgun. Right. We are a licensed armed security company. And so I hold the license. I have to qualify. I am a gun owner. I believe in, you know, the the right to own guns. However, I, like you, believe that there could be more restriction. I right. think that the, you know, access that people have and the limited, um, I guess, uh, standards when it comes to who can get what is, is problematic. And so that, um, that's where I feel like. And I think gun safety education. Yes. Um, well, like so from, a, from a very young age, you know, my kids were introduced to um, firearms. I want to say early. I did not grow up with firearms. Yes. I did not grow up hunting or, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with a single mom right. and my dad who lived very close, but neither were gun owners. Um, I didn't shoot a weapon until I started in law enforcement. Yeah. Um, but my children, I introduced them very early on just simply to, to, um, take away the mystery. T- take away, exactly. That's what I did the too. curiosity yeah. Yeah. of like, this is what it is, yep. you know, and I never had an issue after that. I educated them about gun safety. They knew all the rules. They knew how to use it. And they were honestly very disinterested. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's the, the important part because I did the same thing with my son when I bought my firearm. We immediately went to the gun range and I said, this is how you're going to, this is how you use it. This is the safety aspect of it. This is how you don't use it. And we went through a whole class, but I strongly believe that you should have to take some sort of gun safety class if you're going to get a firearm or at least a license to have a firearm. So, you know, and I think that there should be some sort of mental health testing involved because, you know, obviously the wrong, you know, guns in the wrong hands, whether it's on the criminal side or lawfully you know, that turns criminal because if you own a firearm, it's a deadly weapon. You should, you should have responsibility for how, you know, for who has those. It is a lot of responsibility. I will say that one of the things retiring that I actually looked forward to, you know, I still carry sometimes, um, but I was actually looking forward to not carrying Yeah, because it is a huge responsibility if, if I have it with me, I have to know exactly where it is and that it's safe a hundred percent of the time, mm-hmm. if I'm in a restaurant, if I'm in the grocery store, I have or at someone's house that has children, I it can't just be in my purse, Correct. you know, in the bedroom, yeah. right? So I was actually looking forward to not, yeah, carrying absolutely. sometimes. I I can totally relate to that. So um, yeah, we I I don't carry as often as I could. And mostly because I don't want the added stress and responsibility of where it's at, what it, you know, and, and who I'm around. I understand. We have, you know, most of our clients are, you know, big universities, places that I can't carry anyway. So, um, but, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm thankful for the ability to carry when I want to. Right. Um, so I know that law enforcement can be both rewarding and stressful. It is. Um, so the mental wellness of, of law enforcement personnel is an important topic. Um, it and it's the same thing with military. And I, and I think yes. about this a lot with our veterans returning home um, and law enforcement retiring and law enforcement in the job. And I know that the stress of that can be really detrimental to your health. Um, so tell me a little bit about, um, tell us what, why officer wellness is so important and, and how we can be better. You know, officer wellness is important because a, a, an officer that is in the right frame of mind that's feeling mentally healthy is, is simply a better officer. Right. 
Um, so, you know, all of us go through stressors. It doesn't matter what profession you're in, sure. but officers and, and public safety in general, and like you said, military, see horrific things daily and it affects them. Absolutely. So in my office, they were watching horrific, um, child sexual abuse on video. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, children of all ages, um, and that absolutely takes toll on you mentally. Uh, you know, um, patrol officers are seeing horrific car crashes and having to notify families. Um, you know, crime scene specialists are seeing horrific violence on crime scenes and all of those things absolutely take a toll. And even, you know, answering calls for service for domestic violence or domestic abuse or, you know, those, those things absolutely all take a toll. Um, and, um, you know, having um, people to talk to, whether it's your peers or a professional, having, um, you know, resiliency training or, um, you know, time off if you need it to um, recoup Mm -hmm. from a traumatic incident. Uh, Those types of things are all incredibly important. And they're important because, you know, officers are literally doing this to keep their community. They're doing this for their community. So we need to do that for them. But it also makes a better officer. If they are in, you know, a bad mood all the time, that shows. Right. It shows in their um, interaction with the public. Uh, It shows in their decision making. So an officer that is healthy Mm-hmm. mentally and physically um, certainly makes a better officer. So we know it's important. Is it readily available? Do you feel? So it's so getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in my 30 years in, in law enforcement, you know, early on it was, you know, you signed up for it. Um, you were all mentally tough, you know, rub dirt on it and move mm-hmm. on. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, didn't talk about things. We're all, we were all tough. Um, and that's the way it was for a very long time. It's, it it is changing. Uh, and, um, I still think that that attitude still exists in some arenas, but it is absolutely getting better. I know in the agency that I worked for, we had a peer support network, um, in the office that I worked in, we had a mental wellness program and in, and in ICAC world, what I call ICAC world internet, the task force, the 61 task forces across the country, um, that work internet crimes against children. It has been a huge topic for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had, you know, in my office, we saw a mental health professional once a year. We had group, uh, discussions with mental health professionals. We had mental wellness training, resiliency training on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, some agencies are getting much better. Well, and I know, um, you know, my previous life, I had owned a company and we did, um, we did group travel and, ma- and meeting management. Mm-hmm. So I had owned a company for 10 years that did that. And the government was actually our largest client. So we did a lot with the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and then each um, division of the military. And um, one of the most important things that I feel like we did was mm-hmm. yellow ribbon retreats, right. which is where, you know, when the when the soldiers are coming home, um, they reun- reunify with their families, but in a way that is different. Because, you know, when you're fighting war every day for however many weeks or months or years that you're there, you're on deployment, you come home from deployment, and then all of a sudden it's, okay, honey, take the trash out, you know change the change the diapers and you know act like you're back to normal after you've been through so much trauma Mm -hmm. is where things get really fractured and there's a lot of mental health issues that transition yeah i can't even imagine yes i know 
I know for me, the transition from going just home every day right. from work to home, you know, there'd be times I would just sit in the car for about five minutes yeah, and yeah. mentally make that transition. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine coming home from war. Yeah, exactly. And trying to make a transition, right. an immediate transition. Right. Well, and it's, it's two completely different environments. You know, you've got the warm and cozy home with your spouse and your children. And then you also have this fighting a war with people who, you know, you're relying every single day on these people to have your back and you're, you're, you're constantly in fear of potentially losing your life. Right. And then to come home and act like you can transition well is, is not, it's not normal. And so these yellow ribbon, um, these yellow ribbon retreats were great because for at least a weekend, you know, they, they were able to get counseling. They were able to have childcare where they could spend time together as a family, but then also spend time together as a couple. Right. And, you know, just spend some time really getting to reunite with each other and kind of that reunification retreat, I think is so important. So do you think there could be something in law enforcement where like a yellow ribbon retreat, you can allow our law enforcement professionals to really get that balance of work and family life that they can, you know, manage it in a, in a way that is less intense on the family, because I know a lot of families struggle with law enforcement. No, a- absolutely. Um, there, there is, there is training out there. Good. Agencies have to, you know, c- uh, the command staff of agencies have to make that happen. Yeah. Has to be so a priority. It, it does. And mm-hmm. I, like I said, that that's changing. Yes. Um, but it's still not full across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are some, um, programs, uh, very interesting programs. One started in South Carolina and we have them in Georgia called post critical incident seminars. And so okay. an officer goes, through a very traumatic incident, whether um, it's personal or uh, professional. So think maybe their officer got, maybe they were involved in an officer-involved shooting mm-hmm. or their officer or their partner got killed or um, maybe there was a child that like something in their personal life. Or So they have these post-critical incident seminars where they go with their families for, uh, with, with their spouse um, for three days and they get professional counseling and they, That's you know, great. they there are seminars yeah. like that, but those are very rare. Okay. Um, but they, but you know, I guess things have to start somewhere. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and, um, it, we're making, we're making headway. You know, I actually do, um, presentations in my, in my post law enforcement career with gray shift. One of the things they allow me to do is still assist and educate law enforcement in certain areas of expertise that I have. Okay. So mental wellness, uh, I give presentations, um, across the country on how agencies can start developing um, mental wellness initiatives in their agency. Wow, that's amazing because I think that's probably one of the things that we can do to help our officers more than mm-hmm. anything is, you know, presenting the idea of taking care of yourself. And I, you know, and not that this is the same, but I feel like there's a little bit of a, um, a parallel between, you know, now that everybody is working at home, we don't have that decompression time after work anymore. So like with me, when I would go into my office, I find that that 30, 40 minutes it takes me to get home is the time I can decompress. And instead, if I'm working at home now, what ends up happening is, you know, I'm scrambling, scrambling, scrambling. Okay, it's six o'clock. I need to make dinner for my son. I'm a single mom. So I've got to, you know, figure it all out. And then I go downstairs and he's trying to have a conversation with me and I'm still in work mode thinking through how to answer an email or, you know, a proposal that I have to work on. And I haven't disengaged from work the way I would normally totally resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we and I find more. that that's a, yeah, working you do. more at home and, and you never disconnect, you know, you don't have that. Okay. 
I was at the office and then I shut my computer down and now I'm at home and I'm in family world now. That doesn't happen anymore with, with the work at home thing. And I feel like that might be part of the, the wellness issues mm-hmm. with people and working. And, right. and I've noticed, you know, still even through, you know, 2020, we obviously had a lot of issues with mental wellness, um, with, with what was going on with the pandemic. But I think even more so now that we're trying to figure out this new way of working without that decompression time, without that ability to separate work and family. And how do we do that? And, you know, law enforcement is, I think, one of the most critical ways that you really need to separate the two. And how do you do that as a mom, sending your child off to school or seeing them on the phone or seeing them on TikTok or Instagram and knowing what you know and, you know, still being, you know, able to stomach it. It's it's definitely a challenge, I would imagine. Yeah. Er, er, you know, every parent has their own parenting style. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> and they, they make their own parenting decisions. Um, but, you know, I always made the decision that uh, I was just going to teach my kids how to be safe online. Yeah. Because I think it's unrealistic to keep them off. Right. Offline. Yeah. You know, well, and I and I am a big believer in the more you restrict somebody from doing something, the more curiosity builds up, just right. like we were talking about with firearms. Um, I actually had a college roommate who uh, went to an all girls school. Her father was in law enforcement and super, super, super strict upbringing. And when she got to college, it was you know, of all course. that craziness because it was, it was the first taste of freedom. Right. And so I think you can, you know, you can do too much. You can do too much in terms of restriction. And so, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm more of a guardrails kind of mom me. and you know, like I know you're going to do things that I don't necessarily agree with. Here are your guardrails. Stay within these guardrails and we won't have a problem. Okay. So in your job as the commander of the Georgia internet crimes against children task force, you have seen a lot of children manipulated and exploited online. So going into this whole, how do we parent now? What advice do you have for parents who are trying to keep their children safe online? First and foremost, talk to your kids. It's an yeah. awkward conversation. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, um, but you can talk to them, you know, age appropriately. Kids are getting, I know my kids got phones when they were in sixth grade. Yeah. Like when they started middle school was sort of the norm Right. They're getting them even younger now. Uh-huh. So, you know, there are parental controls and things, you know, at that age that are probably a good idea. But t- mainly talking to your children, telling them what the rules are about, you know, d- and they're really sort of basic rules. Right. Um, you know, don't talk to anyone you don't know online, especially at that age. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, you know, unless you know them personally, um you don't talk to them. Don't allow them to follow you. Don't allow them to friend you. Those types of things. Yes. Um, don't provide personal information. It's all really sort of easy, easy rules. Mm-hmm. Tell them that there are people online that um, may pretend to be someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone you meet online is who they say they are. Those types of things yeah. are sort of the general rules. The other things that I would tell parents is if your kid has Snapchat or TikTok, then you need to have Snapchat or TikTok on your phone Mm -hmm. and follow them. Yes. um, And know how the app works. Get your kid, you know, sit down with your kid and say, hey, show me, show me how TikTok works, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Even today in in my job, I had to know all the apps and Mm -hmm. things like that. But my daughter, my kids still know how to use Snapchat and TikTok better than I do. (laughs) You know, that will always be the case. Right. But knowing knowing what what they're into, you know, be engaged. Yes. um, But having the conversation and it gets, you know, gets more involved as they get older. Sure. Not taking nude photographs and sending nude photographs and 
um, that it stays online forever, mm-hmm. just educating them, you know, that there are consequences to their actions and how to stay safe. That would really be the, the biggest, um, uh, the biggest piece of advice that I would give parents. Okay. Well, and I also noticed that when my son was younger and he was playing video games online and he yes. started being able to chat online on Xbox with other kids that yeah. will. And then the, he's like, well, yeah, there's a man that's on there. I'm like, why? Why is there a man? Why are you talking to a man online? You know, and and so I had to have the conversation even before he had a phone when he was just doing Xbox and because it was the same thing. They were messaging. They're features. asking. Yeah, they're yeah. asking questions and they're they're inquisitive. I'm like, why would a grown man need to play Xbox with an eight year old? You mm-hmm. know, and so there are things that, you know, really were red flags to me, even at a young age before social media. That. Absolutely. Gaming platforms yes. are, predators are on gaming platforms. Yes, yes. Um, it is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that is also, even if they don't have a phone, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they can still be reached. Absolutely. And I actually, um, I, I tell my son all the time, the internet is forever. Be careful what you say, mm-hmm. be careful what you post, you know, right. everything can be found at some point, you know, by, by somebody who wants to. So, the internet is forever. Just keep on keep in mind it that is. you're going to apply for a job one day, and you don't really need something coming back to you, or you know, any any other position really. Um, so, tell me, what what advice would you give to women who are looking to make law enforcement their career choice? Um, you know, in the in the thirty year, I, I will readily admit, I um, I was very very lucky in my career. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked for an agency that um, wanted a very diverse workforce. Wow. And, you know, the GBI is about 30% female. Really? And, um, you know, I worked with great law enforcement agencies, local, state, and federal, um, for 30 years. And, you know, I think that there may be a little bit of a myth that, you know, females aren't wanted in law enforcement. I actually think that they are. Yeah. Now, there's some, you know, there's some small town agencies, or, you know, and even large agencies that, sure. and people, it's, it's not really an agency culture most of the time. It's a few people yeah. who may think there is no space for women in law enforcement. But I think by and large, um, that's actually not true. Well, that's great. So uh, I would want to tell them, don't be afraid of, um, of applying, uh, you know, um, it's uh, there are skills that women have, yeah, um, that absolutely make law enforcement make their make them great law enforcement officers. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. So, what uh, what who inspires you? Uh, so I knew you were going to ask this question, and so <laughs> I gave it some thought, and I, I honestly came up with two answers. Okay, um, you know, the first one. I was really inspired by the people that I worked with. Okay. Um, you know, especially, you know, I mentioned it a little earlier, but especially the people in my office. I, I don't even know that I can articulate the level of dedication yeah. and, and brain power. Mm-hmm. that they have yeah. um, and uh, the, and are working these crimes against children. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, the amount of work that they would do and the, you know, trying to work life balance. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. And they, they literally inspired me. Wow. Uh, you know, it was my job to get them what they needed, mm-hmm. but they, you know, if I did that, they absolutely, they, um, went above and beyond. Yeah. 
second second answer would be my kids actually inspire yeah. me. You know, my kids inspire me to be a better person, to make make good decisions. Um, you know, I've I've traveled a lot in my in my career with the GBI, and I travel a lot now. And my husband has always traveled a lot, so they had to be very independent very early. Yes, and they um, they've absolutely um, exceeded my expectations, but they would be who would inspire me. That's awesome. I agree. My son inspires me too. Um, so, what advice would you give to eighteen year old you mm. that setting out on your journey? I would tell myself to adventure sooner, try new things sooner. Uh, you know, I have no problem doing that now, but. I, um, you know, I have an extensive bucket list. I would yeah. have liked to have started that sooner. Okay. Um, you know, I've, I've never re- really been a scared person, but I would, um, it, I didn't know how to do those, how to make yeah. those things happen. Right. I would want to figure that stuff out sooner. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the second thing, and this wasn't really when I was 18, but after I became an, a GBI agent, um, there was a very long period of time where I thought the most interesting thing about me was the fact that I was a GBI agent. Okay. And it was my total identity. Okay. And I don't really think that that's the best way to think of yourself as like a singular. Um, but I really thought that was the most interesting thing about me. That, wow. And not, not that I really didn't have any other value, but that's sort of where it ended up leading me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it took having kids to and, and adventuring and, you know, trying a lot of different things to really think of myself as, as interesting beyond being a GBI agent. Sure. And I think as women, we do that a lot, right? Mm-hmm. We we identify as our kid's mom or right. so-and-so's spouse, but we, you know, it's hard for us to live in our own identity and all that it encompasses, career, right. kids, spouse, work, life, volunteering, and, and you know, make us as a whole um, interesting people. And so that kind of leads me to the next question. As women, we often give our power away because we feel like we want to, you know, give those accolades or that power to somebody else in our lives. We are givers by nature. We're nurturers. So tell me about a time that you gave your power away and a time that you took it back. Okay. So, you know, I've mentioned how much, um, you know, the office that I worked in, it really, we really were a team. Law enforcement is a team. My office was a team. Sure. Um, I, you know, and I, rightly so, I always gave a lot of credit to them. A lot yes. of the wins that we had, I gave a lot of credit to them. But I rarely took any of that for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was my job to um, equip them properly and make sure they were well mentally and physically and, you know, advocate for them, whether it was mm-hmm. in, internally or externally with the press or legislators or, you know, that, that was my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, in retrospect, I think I did that fairly well. Uh, but I really always gave the credit to them. And, right. and, and a lot of it should go to them. But I rarely saved any for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and I think that when we do that, that's what holds us back in our careers. When they say, you know, we could have advanced further, but we, we do so much of giving our, our credit, you know, credit away, power away, that I think that's one of the things that if we're not out there advocating for ourselves, then nobody's recognizing what we're bringing to the table. Right. People we're helping do, but maybe not those who are one or two people removed from us. And so that may be an, another reason why we don't advance as quickly as men do. Right. So you also asked... Um, a time you step back into yes. your power. So I, I think that comes to, um, you know, the position that I have now. Yes. 
Um, I, when I reached 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I thought I could work for GBI for another couple of years, yeah. but also I, after working for 30 years and for the same company, how do you look for a job? I, I had no idea how to look for a job. So right. I started, you know, developing a presence on LinkedIn and I did a few things, but I, I identified some companies that I wanted to work for. Sure. And, tar- you know, I don't want to say targeted them, but I did. Right. And uh, I ended up asking for the job that I have now. Wow. Um, you know, approaching them and mm-hmm. saying, I would absolutely love to work for Gray Shift. Okay. Uh, and that worked out for me. Good. Good. <laughs> so, well, <and> yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, you know, so, uh, and that was a huge step for me. I was petrified. Yeah. I will not lie. Well, going from public service your entire career to mm-hmm. the private sector, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a huge transition. It is. It yeah. is. It's been a great transition. It's a, it's a phenomenal company to work for. Um, you know, we we um, provide a tool to law enforcement. So I still get to work with law enforcement. I still get to see all of the, the connections that I've developed across the country throughout right. my career. Um, and about 10% of our company is former law enforcement. So wow. yeah. that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that helps also is just knowing that you're still serving the community. It, it is. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, what do you want more people to know? I want more people to know that, um, you know, cops are real people. Yes. Um, cops Thank you are, for saying that. You know, um, cops, you know, have uh, personal lives that affect them professionally, and they have, you know, things that, that, that happen at work you know, affects them personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, like we talked about, they see horrific things. Uh, they make mistakes. Um, you know, most of them are very well trained, um, but still make mistakes. Sure. And uh, I think most often those are genuine mistakes. Um, and, you know, every police officer that I have ever known truly wants to help their community. Absolutely. They are in it for the right reasons. I realize that that, that 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 is not universally true. Sure. But I, I absolutely think it's it's mainly true. And extrapolating that out to general society, I think most people are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even after being in law enforcement for 30 wow. years and seeing what I've seen, I <laughs> yes. absolutely believe most people are good. Yes, absolutely. Well, good. I'm so happy to hear that because, you know, and that, that like we talked about at the very beginning when I did my internship and, you know, I studied criminal psychology and I really thought – Oh, I can do this. I can do deep dives on people's psyche and, and <laughs> understand how they tick until it's I had crazy to do it. when you get in their heads yeah, sometimes. Until, <laughs> until I had to put it into real life action. It's mm-hmm. one thing to read it in a book. It's a whole other it's a whole other deal to like live it and, and understand that the person sitting in front of you and what they're capable of and you know, and then you start to, to see people differently. But um, I'm really happy to hear you say that, you know, people are mostly good. I absolutely think that. And, you know, um, I I realized fairly early on in my career, not the undercover narcotics days, but there was a period of time when I worked Medicaid fraud. Yeah. Um, You know, there are a lot of good people that make really bad decisions. Right. right. You know, um, and um, I've arrested them. Mm -hmm. You know, they made some, they are, they were not bad people. They made some really bad decisions. Right. You know, there's other people who I would put in the classification of they're bad people. Yeah. Um, but most people are good Mm -hmm. and make really bad decisions. Right. And, and a lot of it, 
and going, you know, to the to the criminal psychology background, a lot of it just comes from the past traumas that they've had and their inability to deal with those things in a healthy way. Or resources and, or yeah, and going back to mental wellness. You mm-hmm. know, this is why mental wellness is so important in our country and well, globally. But you know, when you're dealing with traumatic episodes, especially as a child, and you don't have the tools to process that in a healthy right. way, it it comes out in an unhealthy, destructive, criminal way. And, you know, how do we start fixing that earlier? And how do we reach these people earlier? Right. So, yeah, I think it's an important conversation we need to continue to have mm-hmm. and um, start finding the, the red flags earlier and, and getting out there. And I applaud your work at the GBI because I think that you, you were definitely on the forefront of that. So thank you sure. for, your, for your dedication to our communities. So, well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really, really excited that we had a chance to sit down and talk. I think it's really genuinely going to help a lot of people. I think your story is inspiring, and I'm so grateful that you were part of our GBI network for 30 years helping well, their children. I, like I said, I enjoy, I thoroughly enjoyed my career, yes. and I'm thoroughly enjoying my life after law enforcement right. career. And you're so still I feel very lucky. People. Yeah, you're still helping the communities, and you're still helping right. law enforcement. So thank you for that. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast, and we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.